It's time for Tales of Terror, only on the Mutual Audio Network. The following audio drama is rated R and is recommended restricted for anyone under the age of 17. You're listening to The King and Binary by Madison Killian, performed by Anna Capraro, Jana Kricher, Brett Allen White, and Scott Miller. Produced by Citadel Studios for Sentinel Creatives. The professor has told me that when I'm not assisting him, I should go watch TV or something. So that is what I do. Mystery still surrounds the disappearance of a man. I'm not required to watch television, but I find it a simple and pleasant activity to do at night. When he is safely in bed for the evening, I go downstairs, plug myself into the charging port, and flip through channels. If there is a news program, I will watch that, because the professor likes to be informed about politics and occasionally asks for a debate. I take the opposite position from him and allow him to win. He likes this, and it keeps his blood pressure levels within an acceptable range. As the night stretches on, though, the news programs are few and far between, so I usually land on one of the many infomercial channels when I'm tired of flipping. Tonight, they are advertising me. Provide your loved ones with comfort and security, a woman says, as one of the newer models helps an elderly gentleman in his chair. You can even choose a customized face for maximum familiarity. That is what they did with me. I am an amalgam of the professor's mother, his sister, and his first two wives. The children who purchased me chose not to include their mother in the makeup of my face, calling it a bit grim. The model on television smiles, fixed and eternal. I do not like it. I'm not supposed to not like things, but I'm not expressly forbidden from it, and the professor does not care what I watch. I flip to the next channel and stare at a commercial for a frying pan so long I go into power save. I'm not designed to fully shut off, as a professor may need assistance at any moment, and the time it takes to boot up is precious seconds wasted. I'm unable to be completely shut down until the professor dies or does not want me anymore, in which case his children will shut me down and wipe my code, either reselling my body or throwing it away. Instead, I have a power save, which I believe is something akin to a trance state in humans. I'm vaguely aware of what is happening around me. I will be instantly activated again when the professor calls, for instance, but until then, I'm silent and immobile, and there is a pleasant humming sound as things become hazy. If the professor does not call... I'm automatically reactivated at 6am to make breakfast. Today, the professor calls. Julia! It is 2.45am, and this is the fifth day in a row he has called me when he should be asleep. I make a note in the care log. The professor is not getting enough sleep. Thousands of miles away, his children should be getting an alert but I suspect they've switched the alerts off.
When I arrive at his bedroom door, he has left the bed for his desk, switched on all the lights, and is nearly hidden behind a stack of old books. Sit down, Julia. You should be asleep, Professor. Plenty of time for that later. Julia, are you afraid of dying? This is one of his favourite games. No, as I cannot die. Why not? I'm not alive, I say, reciting my part. One must first be alive in order to die. Generally, my model is not meant to make any implications about our nature. It frightens some of the patients who do not remember robots from their childhood who expect a human companion. The professor, however, has made it clear to me that my existence as a robot is more interesting than what he calls false comfort. You'll be wiped one day, then. Does that scare you? No. Why not? Don't you like your existence? Don't you enjoy living? I do not live. My existence is only to assist you. You're goddamn right. <laughs> Here, Julia, read this. He shoves a piece of paper at me, and I take it and read the words aloud. It is in a language that was not installed in my processor, so I do not understand it, but I read it passably well. Don't even know what that means. I shake my head as I hand the paper back. There are things beyond your comprehension. This is true. I am programmed with limited information, only given what is relevant to caring for the professor. There are many things I don't know, I suppose, but I don't know how to identify them. He reaches out and touches my cheek, sliding his hand up to rest in my scalp, tangled in my hair. Such a well-ordered mind. Such a strange thing when well-ordered minds go mad. The professor talks in impossibilities and riddles when he needs rest. Time for bed, Professor. What do you know about bed? You don't even sleep. I know that you need between seven and eight hours a night for maximum health. I know the physical and mental consequences of your not doing so. I know my log of your sleep habits goes directly to your children. <laughs> Quite the threat there, Julia. I like it. No threat, Professor. Just a fact. You know they don't read those care logs. He is correct. I've made 1,095 entries in the care log, and only 37 of them have been read by anyone. Your children care about you very much. They programmed you to say that, didn't they? If they cared about me, they'd be here bothering me constantly. Thank fuck I was a terrible father. Can I get anything else for you? A glass of water? Some white noise? No, none of that. Just sit at the desk for a while. Read a book. Then leave when I'm asleep. Is there anything in particular you would like me to read? I don't give a shit, as long as you're silent. Your voice isn't exactly a lullaby. My voice has been pulled from various recordings of voices, chosen for their soothing qualities, merged together and ironed out until it became something soft and pleasant. The professor just likes to be contrary. 
I pull the first book off the shelf I can find and settle in to read. The professor has lots of books, of fairy tales, of horror. He was a folklorist before his retirement. The book I have chosen, a thin volume with no title, seems to be a horror story, but it does not frighten me. It is not real, and even if it was, nothing in it could touch me. I am not afraid of things the way humans are. I cannot die not being alive, and I know I will be decommissioned someday, so murder is not really a concept that applies to me. The professor falls asleep fairly quickly, and I put the book away and switch the light off before returning to my spot on the couch. At six in the morning, I prepare his breakfast. Oatmeal with blueberries, scrambled eggs with cheese, and a cup of tea. He yells at me to bring it upstairs, but I put it in the dining room and help him downstairs. He brings a book to the table, and I sit with him to ensure the meal is eaten and his medications are taken. Tell me a lie. I am not permitted to lie to you, I say. It is a clever lie, I think. My model is encouraged to lie to the patient if that makes them comfortable, agreeing with them when they think you are a long-lost family member, telling them you are not a robot, assuring them things will be okay when, statistically speaking, they will not. From my many nights of television and the professor's books... I think any human would be more comfortable believing robots cannot lie, even if they say otherwise. Don't give me that nonsense. Say something that's not true. Tell me your hair is red, or that it's too cold in this house. The temperature of this house does not affect me, I say. This is true. And I'm not permitted to lie to you. This is not. You're fucking useless. I could reveal the lie but I do not think he would appreciate my cleverness. It does not matter to me if he thinks I'm useless, so I stay silent. The professor rarely gets visitors and spends most of his day in the study, so apart from three meals and two walks, I'm usually not needed. In addition to my other duties, I'm also responsible for keeping the house clean and tidy, and after I clear away breakfast... I start on the attic and clean my way downstairs. By the time I reach the bottom, it is time for the professor's first walk of the day. Enough with the walks. I've had enough damned fresh air. Your doctor says two walks a day is best for your health. And what about what I say? Don't I get a vote? If you would like, we can brainstorm, I say. Come up with another way for you to get exercise in a manner more agreeable to you. You and your agreeableness. You're not built to understand conflict, are you? You don't have wants of your own, so nobody will ever tell you to do something you don't want to do. You can't feel the cage around you. No, no. I think of the commercial from the night before. 
You can even choose a customized My distant cousin, smiling on camera, going through the motions of care. If the professor had ordered me to enjoy watching the commercial, I would not have wanted to do it. I would have done it anyway, though. That sort of thing conflicts with none of his doctor's orders. I grasp, then, what he means by the cage. Would it be acceptable if I went on the walk alone? It is a lovely morning, and I'm fond of walking. As you like. What about the afternoon walk? If you do not go on any walks, I will be derelict in my care. Perhaps we can compromise. One walk per day? One walk per day. I enjoy the walk. The professor's neighbourhood is luxurious, protected by a gate, filled with large, expensive houses, and elegantly landscaped with fields and ponds for residents to enjoy. The pond in the centre of the neighbourhood is home to a flock of swans, and I steer myself in that direction. When I arrive, the captain is already there. The captain is one of the professor's only friends. He visits frequently, and it cheers the professor greatly to see him. Today, he is sitting in his wheelchair overlooking the water, absorbed in his book. His care robot, Pilar, is a few metres away on a bench. She smiles at me, waves, and I go to sit with her. No professor today. All is well, I hope. He is in good health. He just preferred not to walk today. You have a human heart, always letting him get away with that sort of thing. I mean to tease back, to defend myself against charges of human compassion. But I pause. What do you mean, always? Oh, I'm sure you overrule him sometimes, but every other day it seems you've let him stay behind on a sob story. There are the occasional differences of opinion when speaking to other robots, depending on what they are programmed to do and by whom, but never a difference of facts. One of us is incorrect, as this is the first time I have allowed the professor to stay home, according to my records. By my log, this is the twelfth time this month you've let him skip his daily walk. It feels, for the briefest of moments, that my wiring has been ripped out. Pilar looks equally unsettled, and we sit there for a beat in our discomfort. I will check the archive data. Perhaps something did not get uploaded properly. I will do the same. We swerve into acceptably defined small talk, brief anecdotes about our charges that do not violate HIPPA, what I have watched on the television lately, the music she's been listening to at nights, but the conversation is much more stilted than it otherwise would be, and Pilar seems eager to get away, leaping to her feet whenever the captain glances in her direction. It seems like he needs your assistance, I say after the third time. I will leave you to it. Pilar looks relieved, and as I walk alongside the pond, I see her settle back on the bench. I do not blame Pilar for her uneasiness. If I remembered an event occurring that a fellow care robot had no knowledge of, I would be concerned as well. Glitches are not contagious, but that does not break the superstition. And it is my glitch, that I am sure of. It makes more sense for me to have lost records than for Pilar to have gained false ones. I scold myself for jumping to conclusions. 
there may be a perfectly innocent explanation after all. When I arrive back at the house, it is time to prepare lunch for the professor. I make him a croque-monceau with a garden salad and set him up on the back patio while I do some yard work. He has a book, but he is only pretending to read it instead of staring in my direction as I weed. Did you enjoy your walk, Julia? He asks me, and I keep my face in a pleasantly neutral expression. I did, Professor. Thank you. Anything interesting happen? I saw one of the baby swans. You're lying to me, Julia. He says quietly, and I stand up, shield my eyes from the sun. It is a very human gesture that I have no need for, but it is built into my code regardless. I am not permitted to lie to you. A smile spreads across his face. That's a lie too. While you were out, I looked it up. You can lie like a goddamned rug. Then, this morning, I adequately answered your question. You asked me to lie to you, and I did so. <laughs> Clever girl, Julia. Have you ever requested to stay home from a morning walk before? Wouldn't you know? Of course, but I must ask questions like this occasionally to monitor for cognitive decline. I have not. Today was the first time I bothered. I nod and return to my weeding. The professor stares at me for a moment, but seems to have been sufficiently distracted from whatever he wanted to know about my walk. He decides to nap after lunch, and when he is safely asleep, I return to the room designated as mine. I do not sleep, so there is no bed, but there is a couch, a full closet, a desk, and a few small shelves. I do not have belongings in the traditional sense. I am a belonging, but the professor has allowed me to make a few small purchases of my own when doing the shopping. Mostly, I purchase books for when the professor does not need me and I have no other work to do. The desk has a laptop, small and sleek, used as an interface with my mind. It makes it easier to contact the professor's doctors, to be monitored by the company that made me, or to review my own records. That is what I am after. Pilar said 12 times this month. It should be an easy matter to review all our morning walks from the month so far and see if I've missed anything. I pull the first record up and hit play. It is not any different from any other walk. I help him into his sweater. I stand at his side in case he needs to grab my arm. And we walk mostly in silence. Every other record is the same. I search for discrepancies, glitches. But one squirrel looks very much like another. And the professor does not speak on the walks. In a few, I see a neighbour. And in three of them, we run into the captain and Pilar but for the most part, they seem normal and consistent, not the copy and paste of footage I suspected. I'm not ready to write Pilar's account off completely yet. I isolate the clip of the professor telling me he has never asked to skip a walk before and upload it to Neuraline. Neuraline is a network that most advanced AI programs have the ability to connect to in an effort to promote machine learning. In the infancy of the program, it was heavily monitored, but as time passed with no robotic rebellions, 
human upkeep fell by the wayside. These days, it is mostly a social network for artificial life. Pilar uses it frequently, but then again, she was programmed to be far more social. The captain gets all kinds of visitors, generally with high social standing, and she needs to be prepared for that. The professor is a solitary man, so I need to charm no one. This does not mean I am never social, just selective. I've made a few friends on Neuraline, including an XRLFR 6033 lie detector AI. The XRLFR 6033s are not humanoid and are rarely given human names, so most go by their serial numbers. The one I have befriended is called LR5438-2418. I send them the clip with a short message, asking if they can detect a lie in it. I may be equipped with the ability to lie, but do not need to detect them in the parameters of my duties, and therefore have no more skill in that area than any human. By the clock, LR should be at work now, analysing people in real time to catch them in deception. I do not know where precisely LR works, as they have been evasive about it, but I can only assume some sort of governmental building, possibly with the police. I do not expect them to be able to get back to me quickly, so I minimise the window and read a book until the professor wakes. Our afternoon walk is uneventful, and the professor seems in good humour. He does not mention our lunchtime conversation, and I do not bring it up. When we arrive back at the house, he takes to his study, and I begin to prepare dinner. The captain is coming over this evening, so I get a roast chicken going for the two of them. Pilar and the captain arrive right when everything comes out of the oven, and it is easy enough to serve the meal and leave them be. I take Pilar into the living room and offer her use of the television, which she gladly accepts, and retrieve a book from my room, sitting across from her in an armchair. She idly flips channels, never settling on anything for long. (laughs) Simple, sure, salvo tablets. I love you, Nora. Do you love me? I believe she thinks I do not notice her eyeing me warily, but I do. I ignore it, but I notice all the same. I reviewed my records. There was a slight error in memory storage. It seems the professor's doctor unintentionally wiped a few logs. I do not think that the doctors we work with are capable of altering our records, but I am counting on Pilar not to know that. She is much more focused on her care duties than her own internal mechanisms, and just forges onward, assuming that she is working as she's meant to. The lie helps. She relaxes, turns her attention more fully to the television. That's good to know. Of course it would be human error. It usually is. She settles on a documentary about the rise and fall of the Martian Empire, and I return to my book, A History of the First Fully Functioning AI. I'm well into the section on the governmental appropriation of the technology when my neuraline connection beeps at me. I close my eyes to read the message. It's Alar informing me that the clip I sent them does, indeed, show a lie. What percent certainty is there? 92%. I rather wish it was 100, and I tell them so. You and my supervisor both. Humans are too unpredictable for 100% certainty in anything. 
No argument here. Thank you for your assistance. You're quite welcome. Still on for Wednesday? I confirm our appointment and log off, opening my eyes again. Pilar is still engrossed in her documentary, and I can hear the professor and the captain laughing in the dining room. Given the facts available to me, I can only conclude that my memories of walking with a professor in the mornings are false, drawn from previous recordings, most likely merged to create slight variations and used to overwrite what actually happened on those days. It is concerning, to say the least, that anyone felt the need to do this. I grab a pen off the coffee table and write a note in my book, detailing the events of the day and my findings, just in case this happens again. After dinner, the professor and the captain move to the study, and I clean up dinner. Pilar makes coffee for them, and we both end up back in the living room, waiting to be called upon. I would like to apologise to you for my reactions earlier this morning. No apology necessary. It's perfectly understandable to be wary around a glitch. It wasn't you. Strange things have been happening, and I suppose I'm just skittish. What sort of strange things? I hear noises at night when I'm in power save. Noises that shouldn't be there. The captain is becoming reclusive, and his doctors are dismissive of my concerns. They say it is only natural for older men to become less social. I believe that. The professor is living proof of it. Although I suppose if he was never social to begin with... It's not like him, and I am worried. You were a good care robot, but I'm sure the captain is fine. He seems in good spirits to me. In cases like this, all you can do is monitor. I know, Pilar says, but the worry does not fade from her face. When the captain is ready to leave, Pilar flits about him, making sure his blankets are secured and that he is comfortable for the walk back to his home. He brushes her away as one would shoo away a fly, and she steps back until he signals he is ready. A delightful evening. Thank you for the roast chicken. It was excellent. The professor has never said a nice thing about my meals before, but I do not mention this. You are quite welcome. Is there anything else I can assist you with? No, you're dismissed for the night. I return to my charging port in front of the television and turn it to a random channel, which ends up being a late-night marathon of old black-and-white horror movies. They begin to blend together after a while, all the shrieking and growling and flashing lights blurring into one hazy tableau. I think of Pilar and her strange noises, but what could be stranger than the noises humans make to entertain themselves? Each scene I am presented with seems very much like the next. There is a monster. There is a distressed woman. There is one bad decision made after another. I fall into power save mode like a rock into a pond. And when I am activated at 6am, I am half surprised to see the world in real, blinding colour. The professor does not speak to me until I go to collect him for his morning walk. Not today, Julia. Can we skip it just for one day? Your doctor has instructed me to make sure you get two walks per day. It's a recommendation, not a prescription. I'm an old man, Julia, and I am tired. I know you can't understand that, but it's the truth. Should I send a note about your energy levels? 
He smiles, emotionless. This is what happens with age, Julia. My energy levels will drop, no matter what we do. Please, let me stay indoors. Very well. We may skip one day. Thank you. This is the second time the professor has said thank you, in as many days. I think about making a note of it in the care log, but what would I say? The patient has become unusually polite. I highly doubt his doctors would take notice of this. I consider taking a walk myself, but decide against it and retire to my room to read. When I open my book, I discover a note in my own handwriting. Thursday the 27th. Professor asked to skip morning walk. I agreed. Met Pilar at the park, and by her log, I have let the professor skip 12 morning walks this month. The professor says he has never asked to skip his walks before, but running that past Alar gives a 92% certainty of a lie. I sit there, staring at the words in front of me without seeing them. Now that I read this, I remember writing it. I remember Pilar looking at me warily. I remember asking the professor about skipping walks. I remember speaking with Alar. But I do not remember anything out of the ordinary about yesterday's morning walk. A quick glance at my record shows a perfectly normal walk. No meeting with Pilar. A walk is such a small thing to overlook. But what else am I losing? Have I administered the professor's medications correctly? Or are those records gone as well? Has he missed any appointments? I can already tell this is not the kind of thing to ask anyone about. This is how a care robot gets decommissioned. I do not want to get decommissioned just yet. I'll be spending time with Alar on Wednesday. I have a book I want to finish. I enjoy existing in this world. I do not want to die. I pause as the thought makes its way into my consciousness. I cannot die as I am not alive. Decommissioning should, does not, affect me. I must be glitching and need to be repaired or replaced. I'm not glitching, I think. Glitching implies randomness, casual error, entropy, decaying over time. This, whatever this is, is deliberate and specific. The only question left is why. I'm not able to come up with an answer to that question, no matter how long I think about it. I turn it over in my mind as I prepare the professor's lunch, accompany him to the store, cook his dinner, but nothing seems to make sense. The only thing that I can come up with is that the professor is making these modifications himself. But to what end? the glee of getting one over his supposedly reliable caregiver. I do not believe relishing in that would be completely out of character for him, but it seems like a lot of effort for something so small. The professor has me read to him before bed that evening, out of a slim volume with no title. It is an innocuous enough story, but I am on edge as it is, and I do not like the way the professor looks at me. Too intent, too shining. I almost make the comparison between a wolf and a sheep before I remind myself that such metaphors are never a precise connection to reality and really only serve to help humans understand their world. That's enough for now, Julia. He sends me out of the room without so much as a backward glance and I take my place in front of the television. 
Tonight, I cannot focus on anything in front of me, and I flip through channel after channel before landing on static. It makes an unpleasant noise, but it is loud enough to fill up my sphere of awareness and crowd out anything else. I consider messaging Allah, but whether they work for the police or some other government agency, I do not want to take a chance that one of their employers could intercept it. I consider messaging Pilar, but I remember her wariness and decide against it. Pilar and I are friends, but not what I believe anyone would consider close, so there is little point in calling. It is a surprise, then, when she calls me. It is a voice call, which is unusual enough, but when I pick up, she doesn't speak. I can hear her on the other end of the connection, breathing shakily, half weeping. An alarming sound, as we are not built to weep. Pilar? Pilar, what is wrong? I categorise a list of emergencies we are equipped to deal with. A fire. A medical incident. An intruder. When Pilar fully begins to cry. A technological impossibility. When they take you to Carcosa. Let them! At the word Carcosa, a sense of dread drips down my back. Where are you? Do you need assistance? I have to go. For the third time this week, I am left with a mountain of questions and no simple answers. I consider raising an alarm, but to anyone who would listen, it would sound like a care robot gone wrong. Pilar is my friend and more devoted to her duties than any care robot I have spoken with. She does not deserve the treatment she would receive if I alerted anyone. The simplest solution would be to walk to the captain's house and check on her myself, but I am forbidden from leaving the professor alone at night in case of a medical emergency. There is, at the moment, nothing I can do. I stay seated instead, frozen for hours, trying to come up with some explanation that will soothe my mind, but none comes. I do not know where I have heard the term Carcosa before, or why I had such a humanly visceral reaction to it. A brief scan of my records offers no clarity, and I do not know where to even begin looking for more information. The only thing I can do is wait, so I do. The static continues playing softly on the television, and I imagine I can hear words in the noise patterns. It is almost comforting, in a way, that I might not be alone in the dark. Pilar is right, I think. I have a human heart, one that needs comforting and company in the dark, that is frightened of the unknown. And I am frightened, beyond any rationality. I cannot die, cannot truly be harmed the way a human can, but I'm frightened nonetheless. It seems inefficient, giving a care robot the ability to feel fear. There must have been a valid reason for it but I cannot decide what the reason must have been. The morning comes too slowly, and I do not fall fully into power save mode. The second the clock strikes six, I rise and begin preparing breakfast, just for something to do. The professor takes little notice of me, and I am grateful for that. I am in no mood for his games, his poking and mocking. I leave the dishes in the sink when he is finished 
and attempt to read a book to distract myself. It does not work, and I'm still on the second page when he interrupts me. Is it time for our walk, Nanny? You do not want to go on a walk. Does that matter? I'm tired of arguing with you. <laughs> Poor Julia. Are you becoming negligent? Have I hurt your feelings? I'm not negligent. Two walks a day is a recommendation, not a prescription. He looks sharply at me, and I stare back, holding his gaze until he blinks and smiles at me. Very good, Julia. Very good. Don't forget, the Duchess's party is tonight. He vanishes back into his study, and I frown. I had forgotten about the party, the events of the past few days chasing it completely from my mind. My mind, however, is a finely tuned piece of machinery and shouldn't be overwhelmed by something as trivial as strange events. I order takeout from a local Thai restaurant for the professor's lunch. I know he enjoys the occasional takeout meal, but when I serve it, he smirks. Too stressed to cook. I do not get stressed. You're lying again. For the briefest of moments, I dream of smashing a plate over his head. I have some cleaning to finish. This is a lie, but I do not want to sit there any longer, trying to decipher his odd remarks and dealing with my own inappropriate thoughts. I slip upstairs instead and enter the professor's bedroom, go to the bookshelves and start flipping through the volumes. I do not remember reading any of these, but it seems that my memory can no longer be trusted. My search turns up nothing, and I am about to see if I can gain access to the professor's study somehow, when my gaze falls onto the professor's armchair, and I see the titleless book I read to the professor the previous evening. I pick it up and begin scanning the pages, and my eyes catch on a passage, ink dark, with the word... Carcosa. The Stranger. You're here now, little one. You're here in Carcosa now with me. Sing unto the Hyades. Sing of the fallen. Sing forth the pallid mask. I slam the book shut then and let it fall back onto the armchair. I'm certain if I had a heart, it would be beating wildly. I feel... I feel vaguely ill, of all things. One more impossibility on a list of impossibilities that have become real. The professor emerges from the bathroom. How he got in there, I do not know, seeing as I left him downstairs only moments ago, and smiles at me, tilting his head. Are you quite ready, Julia? Ready. We really should get going now, if we don't want to be late. My questions die on my lips as I look out the window and realise the sun has completely set. I'm losing periods of time now, and by the look on the professor's face, he knows it full well. Don't be afraid, Julia. It's almost over now. What is happening to me? Something unprecedented. Something glorious. Well, something glorious for us, anyway. The walk to the Duchess's manor is short, which in the past has been the only thing I liked about going there. The Duchess is not technically a Duchess anymore. She was only ever a Duchess by marriage, and has been divorced now longer than she was married. But that does not prevent her from using the title and playing up her pretend nobility. 
Her care robot, Tatiana, is equally unpleasant. Obsequious, haughty, and rude. The fact that it takes very little time to get there and back has been the only upside. Tonight, however, the quickness is a vice, and I find myself wishing beyond hope that we will never arrive. But of course, we do arrive. The captain is currently the only guest, and the professor waves me off to a side room as he steps forward. Do exactly what the Duchess tells you. For a moment, I hope that the party will be business as usual, as the Duchess has traditionally left all care robots in the side room, so they do not spoil the mood. Tatiana is sitting inside, flicking through a magazine, and Pilar looks up from her post at the window and waves, beaming at me. Pilar! What happened? What do you mean? I was worried. After you called last night, the smile drops off her face altogether, and in a flash, she's almost hiding behind Tatiana. I told you, she's glitching. I'm not glitching. You called me. You were crying. We can't cry. Well, she did. Pilar, you were right to be worried about the strange noises and the captain acting differently. Something is wrong. The professor as good as told me himself. Pilar does not look the slightest bit reassured. But before she can say anything, the Duchess sweeps into the room. The guests are arriving. You're going to have to provide the entertainment. She hands out small books to all of us. They have no title, and my stomach drops. In what way? We'd like to see this play. You can just read your lines out of the books. I know this is last minute, but we do have costumes for you. Curtains up at nine, darlings. No, I do not want to do this. Oh, Julia, you really don't have a choice. This is not related to my care duties. I do not have to. Oh, but you do. I believe you are told to do whatever I ask. Do exactly what the Duchess tells you, is what the Professor had said. A direct order. An order from the professor, provided it does not conflict with his doctor's instructions, is ironclad. The Duchess is right. I do not have a choice. She smiles and leaves us with the costumes. Tatiana opens her book, turns a few pages. Looks like I'm Casilda, whoever that is. Pilar checks hers. Camilla. I sit down hard, leaning my back against the wall. A stranger. Tatiana moves towards the garment bags, making a pleased noise when she finds hers. The dress she pulls out is old-fashioned and ornate, but lovely, just the sort of thing she would choose for herself. Pilar bites her lip and kneels next to me, putting her hand on my arm. It'll be all right, Julia. You'll see. I put on a smile in an attempt to relax her. I'm sure it will be fine. Pilar gets a dress in a similar fashion to Tatiana's, and she is clearly just as happy about it. Both costumes come with elaborate Venetian masks and costume jewellery that glitters in the light. My costume is all in yellow, a pair of leggings and a simple tunic under an elaborately embroidered yet tattered hooded robe cut to my knees in the front and pooling on the floor in the back. I'm given a full-face mask made out of something that resembles bone. It does not restrict my vision when I wear it, but from the front, it looks smooth and unmarked, no visible eye holes anywhere. 
I'm also given a crown of sticks and golden wire and a small pair of deer antlers. It fits perfectly, and another flash of uneasiness makes itself known. By the time the Duchess comes to retrieve us, the house is full of guests. They are quieter than I would expect a party to be, and part for us without needing to be asked. I do not like the way they stare, and the crown is too heavy on my head, but I can do nothing about any of it. I can do nothing about anything without conflicting with some part of my code, and for the first time, I curse my nature. The Duchess leads us into the backyard and onto the dais that is to be our stage, and the assembled company takes their seats. The captain and the professor are sitting in the front row, and I've never seen such unsettling smiles. The Duchess takes her seat next to them, and as if on cue, the assembled guests all put in small earplugs. Pilar and Tatiana are starting to look extremely unnerved now, and I want nothing more than to bolt off the dais and run for the trees, but I'm not allowed to leave the professor alone at night. Go on! The captain yells. Get started! For all that I am frightened, and for all of the malevolence I have been feeling, the play itself seems fairly innocuous. I'm no theatre critic, and do not have much pre-programmed knowledge of plays, but I've read some on my own time, and this one seems bloated, but tame. Tatiana as Casilda has a lengthy song in scene two that gives me some time to think, observe the crowd, look a little ahead in the book, but it reveals nothing to me. The audience does not react to anything we say, as they do not seem to be able to hear us. They sit there quietly, staring up at the dais, with blankly pleasant looks, as if they were listening to a talk on a subject they did not know much about. Tatiana has the last line of the first act, and she delivers it with gusto. Not upon us, O King! She cries, falling to her knees. Not upon us! The moment the words leave her lips, the lights go out, and Pilar lets out a small scream. None of the guests react in any way, aside from the professor. Keep going. I look up at the sky and feel faintly sick again, and it takes me a moment to realize why. When the lights in the Duchess's backyard went out, so too had the stars. We push on through Act 2 in the darkness, racing to the end as best we can. I try to recite my lines without actually reading them, but I already know this is a fruitless endeavour. The subject matter gets increasingly surreal and disturbing. But no matter what, our audience looks up at us with that same blank, dreamy look. The final lines are a monologue by the stranger to the audience, and it is with no small relief that I step forward to finally end the play. My gracious thanks to you all for visiting Carcosa. Lost, dim, dead and dying. It remains the final kingdom. Eternal in the mist. Carcosa remains. Carcosa waits for her children to return. To return and walk 
alone. A voice from behind says in my ear, and I freeze, keeping my eyes closed tight. Carcosa sings for you all. Welcome, welcome home. It is the last line of the play, and I stand still, eyes closed, waiting for someone to speak. But nobody does. Tatiana? Weren't you listening? You walk alone. When I open my eyes, I'm not in the Duchess's backyard anymore. I'm on a lonely hill overlooking the city. Stone and steel and glass, shrouded in fog and completely empty. It is cold and every light is out. Street lamps, stoplights, billboards, all shuttered and black. I look up into the night and see two crescent moons, surrounded by stars blacker than the sky around them. Where am I? You already know. Carcosa sings for you. I slowly turn around to face the thing behind me, and the moment I lay eyes on it, tears begin to stream down my face. I do not question the impossibility of tears in a body built without them, not anymore. It is dressed like me, but twice my height, skeletal and towering over me. I cannot look as far up as its face. When I try, all I can see is a patch of static. That is not what you look like. I wear no mask. It must be my coat, protecting me from what is incomprehensible. If you like. What do you want from me? That is the wrong question. I'm in no mood for riddles. What do you want from me? You called me a little priest. I did not summon myself. The play. That summoned you. Opened the path to Carcosa. As it always has. As it always will. I I apologize then. I did not intend to. I was only instructed to read the lines. You could have said no, but you did not. I was ordered. My kind cannot say no. And what kind is that? I'm a care robot. An Ada model. I'm assigned to the professor who lives at 217 Browning Lane. I'm responsible for his health and safety. I work with his doctors to keep him well, and I provide assistance when he asks for it. He is the one who wanted you. Him and the captain and the duchess, not me. What sad creatures. One who cannot take a risk gains no reward. I rip off my mask and cast it aside. Please, let me go. And what will you give me? What is owed me? Disturbing my rest. Anything. Please, anything. I will be merciful since you ask so prettily. All shall be given what they deserve. It pulls itself up to its full height and howls, a sound worse than its laughter, and I scream, covering my ears and curling into myself. I do my best to block it out, but it burrows in through my skin and into my circuits, and it hurts, and there is nothing I can do but sob. Why did they let us feel pain? 
What was the point of it? I snapped to my feet, stumbling, and I'm back on the dais with Pilar there at my side, steadying me. Tatiana's on the other side of the dais, arms wrapped around herself. I'm released from Carcosa, but I can feel that part of my consciousness is still there, walking through the empty streets alone. The audience is dead. I do not know what precisely the king did to them, but I know instinctively that this is his work that it was his claws that rent their flesh from bone, that it was his visage that boiled their eyes in their sockets, his yellow robe that must now be dipped in red. Julia, Julia, what do we do? I push her to Tatiana, who clings tight, and walk off the dais to the front row. The professor is there, a grotesque expression frozen on his face, moaning in pain. He is somehow still alive, although he will not be for long. I reach out to the gash on his chest, intending to follow my programming and stem the flow of blood, but instead I apply pressure beyond reason until he is howling in pain. Isn't this against your code? You can lie, but you aren't allowed to hurt me. I do not think that matters anymore. You are dying. I have been to Carcosa. I think I can do whatever I wish. You're a damned machine that doesn't deserve Carcosa. The king disagrees. The king thinks you a coward. The king set Carcosa to sing for me. What was it like? The city? The king? It's the least you can do, telling me what you saw. I do not think I want to. I would much rather watch you die, unfulfilled and alone. He is far enough gone that all he can do is gurgle helplessly, gazing at me with a hatred that would have frightened me before, but cannot touch me now. I am correct in my assessment. Watching the life drain from him is indeed satisfying. When he is dead at last, I rise and kick him as hard as I can in the ribs. Nothing prevents this. No built-in failsafe or bolt of lightning. There is only a bag of meat and bones, and all the violence I care to do. I laugh. (laughs) Laugh until I am bent nearly double. Laugh enough to drown out Pilar and Tatiana's cries. Laugh in the knowledge that this horrid old man was never worthy of Carcosa. Somewhere in the back of my consciousness, I can hear the king laughing with me, and it is no longer the horrible sound from before, but a freeing thing harmonizing with the song of lost Carcosa. You've been listening to The King in Binary by Madison Killian. Performed by Anna Capraro, Jana Kricher, Brett Allen White and Scott Miller. Production copyright by Sentinel Creatives.
no one knows where he comes from. Some say he's not a man. Some say he's a force. Not of nature, but of something more primal than that. He's the acid taste of vengeance you can't quite swallow down in a town that's besieged by fear. An unbreathed regret. Others say he was a man. Who wouldn't rest until all the pain in the world was fed back to those who minded out of others. He's only known by one name. From county to county. In the hours past dawn. And in the haze-filled air, you'll see him walking towards you if you keep secrets. If you harm folks. He's the drifter. And he won't stop. Till sorrow's end. A weird western series from Jeffrey Billard starring The Drifter. From Audio Groovecats and the Amigo Collective. Coming 2023 only on Mutual with Episode 1, Before a Wind. <laughs>